Hello and welcome. Hello. You're listening to Education Policy for All podcast. We're your hosts, Lindsay Nigren and Dustin Hosseini. Okay, hello and welcome to another episode of Education Policy for All. Today we're joined by Dr. Thomas Cowett from the School of Education, who's going to give us a talk on remaining skeptical of collaborative improvement, which was a seminar he gave earlier in the spring of 2022. So, Tom, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, Dustin, Lindsay, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, A little bit about me. Uh, I'm a lecturer. My official title is in Collaborative Improvement and Educational Change. Um, joined the faculty last year, and um, I'm excited to be here at the University of Glasgow. Uh, currently, I'm teaching on the MSc online course, uh, taking students through kind of writing an initial research proposal, which I think is a, a very stressful task when you're doing it for the first time. Um, I also contribute to the PGDE, you know, initial teacher training programs in various ways, um, leading seminar groups, um, overseeing dissertations, especially for fifth-year students. And then um, I'll be leading a new elective, actually, this coming spring um, as part of the EPI program in collaborative change. So I think long-term, the goal is within the school is, is to actually get a master's degree program going in collaborative, collaborative improvement. So that's kind of our first step this spring of of getting a program created is getting our first course on the book. So very excited about that. Okay. And tell us a bit about just very briefly the, the seminar that you gave on um, remaining skeptical of collaborative improvement. Um, what in brief was that about? That's a kind of a controversial title. So it sounds very interesting. Yeah. So when I was uh, first asked to do one of the seminars, um, for the research and teaching group, I decided just to write something from scratch, and I tried to make the the title thought provoking, so people would want to come and attend. What better way to make it thought provoking than to take your professional title and be skeptical of it? So, being a lecturer in collaborative improvement, I decided let's call it remaining skeptical of collaborative improvement. Um, the basic idea behind this think piece, I'll call it, because. You know, it was just an essay I wrote up the week before and and wanted feedback from it from the audience. But kind of the basic idea from it is, you know, collaborative improvement. If you think about where we are right now as a field, um, and as a field, I mean educational change, educational improvement, however you want to refer to it. Um, you know, we're coming out of, at least I want to believe, an era that was dominated by accountability politics. I think that was the cornerstone of education policy for a number of decades and even before, you know, legislation like No Child Left Behind in the United States that really hammered home accountability. And so I want to believe we're coming out of that and we're, we're coming up with new ways of working where teachers aren't just receivers of new policies and initiatives, where teachers are the creators, facilitators of new policies and initiatives to, to improve education. But the reason I'm skeptical of that being the new way of, of working with an educational change or educational improvement is, you know, that really requires a different type of valuation in terms of practitioner experience, practitioner knowledge, and what teachers, classroom teachers have 
to bring to the table. And so without folks valuing that type of knowledge, which is different than, you know, peer-reviewed, published, researcher-type knowledge, I don't know if collaborative improvement ways of working has staying power to actually change fundamentally in an authentic way that kind of ways of working under this this era of accountability. So that's kind of the main crux of where the title came from and where the think piece came from and wrote it up and just kind of threw it out there to see what the research and teaching group thought of it. Okay. And maybe just a starter question. Uh, why are you, or why should we remain skeptical of collaborative improvement? For me, for collaborative improvement to happen, we need fairly diverse networks of people contributing to new initiatives, new programs, new policies and education. And those folks, you know, those, those people in the network um, need to be from a lot of different backgrounds and need to be participating in a lot of different activities. So it can't just be folks that are external from schools. Um, it needs to be school-based practitioners. They need to be a part of those networks. Parents need to be a part of those networks that are collaborating and, and coming up with solutions. And, you know, the reason I mention those groups is because they're closest to practice. And so they see problems and they experience problems and they're very good at developing solutions on the fly that start to address issues that they see in their classrooms or in their schools. And until that knowledge is embraced and amplified um, within education in a meaningful way, you know, the whole idea of collaborative improvement is, is hollow to me, unless you're going to include folks working in schools. So until I see more diverse types of improvement networks, um, you should remain skeptical, I think, of, of, of that actually being an authentic way forward. Okay. And I guess, so you mean, as an example, academics shouldn't just theorize, but they should connect with the practitioners, but equally practitioners shouldn't just network with each other, but they should also go the other way and maybe get in touch with theory. Yeah. And I tried to bring this up, you know, towards the beginning of, of the seminar where I talked about the importance of scale in education. You know, I, I think if you're working within a school, we have a tendency, and I'll say we, because as a former secondary teacher, I had this tendency as a practitioner to really network and use all of my social capital, making connections with folks that were at my immediate disposal. So within my school, maybe outside of my school, within my school district in the United States context, but rarely would I transverse scale and connect with a nonprofit, let's say, or a policy expert. I didn't really have the opportunity to make those connections because I didn't find myself in the room with those people. As a practitioner, I found myself in my classroom <laughs> working most of my professional day within my school. And so my ability to network outside of my school was limited unless I attended a conference or, you know, a CPD session that was outside my school district. Um, those opportunities are far and few in between. So I think it's going to take for real collaborative improvement to happen, authentic collaborative improvement to happen. Practitioners are going to need those opportunities to network and transverse scale. So outside of their schools, and we're going to need to also put policy folks, academics in those rooms with teachers. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, just a comment from me. I used to teach English for academic purposes, so academic writing. And I think one of the biggest things that 
a lot of people were guilty of, maybe even myself, was we would only network within, each, within our own community. We wouldn't really network across. Some people would, but usually it was within the community of kind of practitioners. Although there were some who were interested in research, so obviously they went a bit further. There were some interested in digital education, so they went that way as well. It's interesting. We do need to kind of go both ways. We need to network with a range of people. Lindsay, do you? No. I just wanted to say, like, I mean, we all have a limited capacity, too, in terms of how we can spend our time and who we can really make meaningful connections with and who we can sustain connections with. And so I fully appreciate that as a teacher, you know, with 150 students on my caseload in any given year, I was expending that energy connecting with parents of my students, connecting with people within my department to talk about, you know, issues that are related to instruction, those immediate things that are always ringing in your ears as a teacher. So it's going to be hard work, but I think any effort to make collaborative improvement kind of an authentic way of working, we really need to help facilitate those networks that transverse scale. Sorry, Lindsay, I interrupted. <laughs> no worries. I was just kind of thinking through. So you went from a practitioner role to more of an academic. And I'm just wondering, of, you know, how do you see your role now that you're kind of outside that you know, inner circle? You know, do you still see that you can actually make a change if you're talking about all of these kind of outside forces working in? And, you know, how do you see the change happening in that way? Or are you, do you still consider yourself connected to, at that practitioner level? Yeah. So for me, you know, so basically how do I go about ensuring my collaborative improvement work is authentic? I, it's all about process and it's about the projects I choose to engage with and basically, you know, what types of people I'm engaging with as I start a project and where I put my efforts. So my research program, I think the best way to describe it, just generally speaking, is I'm interested in relationships. I'm you know, part of my seminar was talking about social network analysis as a, a set of tools, and we'll get to that later. But I'm interested in relationships, how relationships impact educational outcomes. I think relationships are key in understanding how schools work and then in understanding how teaching and learning occurs. The types of projects I pursue, I like to partner with practitioners. So it's not, you know, I, I don't consider... If, I'm, if I want to partake in a collaborative improvement project, I wouldn't just be engaging with folks that are external to schools and then going into schools as a researcher that's very distant from research subjects. You know, I am pursuing partnerships with practitioners, learning together, and then actually coming up with, you know, a, a research approach with those school partners. And my research program just does that at different scales. So... You know, in the coming year, there's a collaborative improvement project that I'm a part of right here in the city of Glasgow that we're trying to get a playground replaced on the south side. That's a very local project, very local scale for us. And we're trying to bring in different stakeholders, um, parent groups from different wards. We're going to be doing student consultations in schools in three different wards that are boundaries to the park where we're working in. Play Scotland's a nonprofit group that we're bringing to the table so in that work, I'm trying to put a very diverse cohort of people in the same room to work towards a common goal. So that's how I try to do it. <laughs> it's about bringing diversity to those improvement networks. 
Yes. Just building off of that, I mean, you're talking about networking and building relationships, but then you also spoke to how how busy practitioners can be. Like you said, 150 in a classroom. How how tangible are these networks that are being built, especially when you're, you know, you had your pilots and then, you know, if you're looking to expand it, how do you actually get these networks formed and build it strong enough to actually develop that change? Yeah. So I think it's easier to work with head teachers. Number one, Um, when you're working with an administrator within a school, you know, they don't have the caseload. They've got obviously different pressures, but they don't have the caseload of immediate, you know, I have to be teaching period two here. (laughs) I need the lesson plan. I got to go. They don't have that type of professional pressure. They have more leeway with their schedules. So working with head teachers, I think is easier. They're still school-based practitioners. In almost all my projects, head teachers are a, are a piece of that. But, you know, I'd point to some of the other work I've done. Practitioners are really busy, but there are practitioners that are participating in improvement work and they are leading their own pilots and programs to improve various aspects of teaching. And so some of the more exciting projects that I can find are what I call teacher innovators or these folks that have their own ideas and they're, they're pursuing funding um, with organizations to scale up their own projects. I don't know how they make time in their professional day when they have full teaching loads. A lot of these folks, you know, when I talk about teacher innovators, they're people with a lot of different professional titles, which is really interesting. So these are folks that teach maybe two days a week, and then they're a specialist leader in education another day during the week, and then they have another leadership position within you know, a curriculum hub, for example, another day a week. So they always describe themselves as wearing many hats. And I I really try to find these folks because they're usually very curious about how things work because they are themselves trying to change the system that they're a part of. And so I usually get further along with those folks than if I were just to approach, you know, a classroom teacher out of the blue. But it's difficult. I mean, if you're a full-time, you know, if you're an FTE teacher, classroom teacher and you've got a student caseload and you're asked then to engage with something above and beyond like a research project. But at the same time, you know, we're all part of as teachers, these professional learning groups, whatever you want to call them, professional learning communities, PLCs is what my school district used to call them. And you're trying to do what's best for your students. And that involves learning about what's happening in other schools and, and, and problem solving. So being curious, remaining curious, engaging with people that are in academia that, you know, are leading some new projects and learning new things is important. And you can still find a receptive audience, even though people are really busy. Okay. And maybe a question about that, uh, because you mentioned the teacher educators, you know, people not having too much time in the day to, to think about how to do things differently, which probably goes back to accountability, um, which was part of your talk. So increased standardization, teachers are deliverers and facilitators of understanding as opposed to, uh, or rather as opposed to facilitators of understanding or creators of knowledge. What might you say about where does innovation have a place in kind of an era of accountability? Yeah. I mean, that's why the lecture was called remaining skeptical because the world I am imagining, there are fundamental changes to it. So we can no longer bog down teachers and require them to B, 
be performing the act of teaching throughout their entire workday minus one prep period, for example. So if you want teachers to be able to participate meaningfully in collaborative improvement, they're going to need more time in their professional working day to be able to contribute to those types of initiatives. And so, you know, by skeptical, I just defined it in the seminar. I'm not easily convinced. I'm having doubts. I'm having reservations because it requires those structural changes. And, you know, if you were to free up a teacher for another just one period of their day, schools are looking at that as, well, how many more additional people do I need to hire then to cover that caseload for that additional hour? So it becomes a budget question right away. And so collaborative improvement, I think, is viewed by a lot of folks as being more expensive if you want to do it well and give teachers the chance to contribute. And let's just be honest, we're all former teachers, former educators, we've been in schools, we we know that budget constraints are a real thing. And so I think it's easy to revert back to what's been done, which is, this is an evidence-based practice that works. Here it is. Go do it. You don't need to question it. You don't need to explore it in your own context. You don't need to contribute your own ideas to it. It's already been proven. Go do it. And that's something I want to move away from. So yeah, I'm still skeptical because like you say, it's going to require some structural changes. And this is part of a larger discussion within the field of education and educational improvement about just changing R&D and how it's set up as this machine <laughs> um, where things are kind of filtered and funneled into schools. Well, it's interesting, uh, just as a kind of a comment again, uh, several years ago, like I'm looking at one of your slides on classroom observation, and there's all these little dots and lines drawing in between the dots that connect the dots. So like the teachers and the students, it was 2013 or 14, I wrote a case study on using Google Docs as a way of extending the classroom. And I had a lot of pushback against that in 2013 because I wasn't following how other teachers were doing things. They were going through the book. Whereas I was like, let's put this book on here. I didn't copy it, obviously. I just put the lessons on it. But where I'm going with this is because I took that risk, I won an award, which I didn't expect. That wasn't my aim at all. It was it was exciting. The students liked it. The learners liked it. I'm guessing then we have to be skeptical, but we also have to recognize risk is a part of any good possible change. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it, it's hard to break away from what's being done and what's been done in any context. Um and so, yeah, I, I think that fits with the whole title of being skeptical because <laughs> it takes some courage to step out of that line. And So how do we move away from these kind of evidence-based? Because then it becomes a chicken and egg. Oh, where's the evidence that it'll work? Oh, we don't have it yet. Oh, well, how do you know it's going to work? Yeah, I mean, you got to love some of the names of this. I mean, you, you can't be against something that's evidence-based. That's such a perfect name for it. Um the thing is, is there's a lot of different types of evidence. And so I think when people say evidence-based, they're talking about a very specific type of evidence, which is usually quantitative in nature, and it's usually generated by a specific group of stakeholders. Um, a lot of folks that are out working outside of schools, which is fine. That, that type of knowledge has a place. But the spirit of collaborative improvement is about valuing other types of knowledge and making sure 
these different types of evidence that we're able to collect contribute to our understandings of schools. And for that to happen, you need a diverse cohort of people in the room. You need a diverse cohort of people being able to share their experiences, but also express those experiences as a professional knowledge base that's respected, whether or not you know, you have a PhD and you're working at a university or whether you're a, a fresh teacher that just started and, and you're very close to practice and you're, you're observing a very nuanced thing in your classroom and developing something that's very creative to address it. So it's not that collaborative improvement in any way is against these, these, these buzz terms that have become buzz terms over the last couple of decades, evidence-based. It's about looking at evidence and and acknowledging that that evidence is very diverse and there's a lot of ways of knowing and that we need to start making sure those ways of knowing are talking to one another within the field because it's about leveraging the best ideas no matter where they originate from and if a really good idea is originating from a classroom in a school the system if it's efficient needs to be able to recognize that and amplify it towards others in contexts where it will also do some good for kids so I guess this kind of goes back to one of the first podcasts that we did, was it, which was on the pluriverse. So recognizing multiple ways of knowing and being as valid. Would you maybe agree with that or would you? Yeah. And I mean, we're, we're still searching for, I don't want to get into the idea that there's multiple realities or anything. We're searching for the same I didn't say the multiverse, I said the blurry verse. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, we're, we're still searching for answers. And I just think when you go about trying to understand an issue from multiple perspectives, you're going to gain a more nuanced understanding of that. And so when I talk about ways of knowing, it's, it's just ensuring that you're really grasping the complexities of that reality and, and of that process that's occurring. Lindsay? I guess my my thought is how do you take it from that level and just expand it to actually make a policy difference? Yeah. Um I mean Lindsay, I think I think your question's about impact and there's a lot of different ways that this type of research can impact um people and students because at the end of the day it's it's about I think with anybody working in education, it's about how many kids you can impact or the type of impact you can have. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll point to that community project that I'm a part of. You know, if we manage to replace this playground after doing student consultations and parent group consultations and doing the design work through Play Scotland and bringing together three wards of Glasgow city councillors that haven't necessarily spoken with one another about some of these issues, that's a huge success. And I will go to that playground, that play area, and use a clicker on a weekend and count up the number of, of kids that go and use that space. And <clears throat> that's very clear impact to me. It's not necessarily... I think some people wouldn't think of that as a policy impact, but I would still push back on that. So there's impact on those individuals that are going to use that space directly. But I think there is a policy impact in terms of how folks at a local government level within Glasgow work, because we're putting folks in the room together. 
and we're hopefully modeling and acting together, you know, acting out a new way of working in a collaborative nature. Whereas these decisions in the past have usually been done pretty siloed within individual wards. And I think that can have an impact on how improvement works carried out in other aspects of the city. So I think there is a policy impact there just because you're going through a new way of working with people. Um, and that takes repetition and practice to become a routine so that people don't fall back on old ways of working. So there's the immediate impact, and that's always the most fun because I think as teachers, you always want to see the reaction of your student or of the kids that use that playground, just using this as an example. But it also changes cultures in terms of how work gets done with whatever groups you're bringing in because they get to participate in this new way of doing things. And so there's an impact there that, that is meaningful that goes beyond the immediate. And I guess this goes back to, um, because accountability usually focuses on the individual, doesn't it? It focuses on either the individual school, the individual unit, whereas you're maybe calling for breaking down those barriers and silos and having dialogue. I mean, I consider myself a social network analysis researcher, and that's because I prioritize relationships when I try to make sense of social phenomena. Um, I think a lot of research, especially when you start looking at, you know, RCTs, a lot of stuff that came out and it's highly funded, at least in a United States context, looks at the individual, individual performance. Um, whereas we are all embedded in these larger social systems and those social systems can frustrate our activities or they can help facilitate our ambitions. And until you also account for that, again, you're only gaining a, a single perspective about why that outcome's occurring. And so it's definitely about bringing a relational component in as like accepted knowledge and, and, and as an accepted way of changing how we work to examine those types of relationships to those networks that are, that exist. So I don't think it's a coincidence that I use social network analysis, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, and it goes beyond these individualistic understandings of, you know, let's elevate our agency as something that like we can control everything just based on our individual ambitions. That's not true. Um, relation, relational networks surround us. We're embedded in them, whether we like to admit it or not, and they can, they can impact us. So um, having that that kind of dualism when I approach these social phenomena and understanding them is, is a big part of what I do. I don't know, Dustin, if you had anything else, but um, I think just touching on that, it's no, it really says something about taking it from the individual teacher in like the single classroom. And then like you're saying, building these stronger relationships and maybe eventually even collaborating across teachers in different areas so that you you do influence that change and you see that impact going farther than your local communities and kind of creating that momentum behind it all. Yeah, and I think that's why I'm so excited to work with, you know, the PGDE program um, and also to supervise some dissertations for them at Duke 5 is because I want to work with teachers that are entering the profession. Um, and hopefully instill in them that immediately the first time you're in the classroom, you're going to be very singularly focused on the students in front of you, which isn't a bad thing. You're learning your profession. But as you 
get confidence and you get your feet under you as a teacher, um, starting to look beyond your own school and make those connections with folks that aren't in your immediate professional network. That is also your responsibility. If you're going to be able to contribute your professional experience and translate that into a professional knowledge base that will, you know, that, that other teachers can, can look at and critique that academics can read about, you know, as, as a case base and, and learn from and include you in research projects. So you have a responsibility to look outward more outwardly um, as you progress as a professional. So that's why I'm excited to work with those programs because I want to instill that um, in the next generation of teachers coming up. And this can definitely apply to people working in higher education as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone has a responsibility to, to look at the ways in which they're, they're doing things and to reflect on that regularly and, and ask yourself, you know, is, is there a different way? Does the, does, you know, our alternative ways, you know, can those lead to, to different outcomes, um, more nuanced understandings of, uh, the phenomena we're interested in. So hopefully that there's a professional ethos to always have that reflection within your practice, no matter what level you're working at. Okay. That sounds like we need to maybe regularly refer back to Stephen Brookfield, Bell Hooks, and several others. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are citations I look for in dissertations and I see them. So that's encouraging, right? Definitely. Okay. Well, I think that's been really interesting. Uh, I don't know if you had any final thoughts or Lindsay, if you had any other questions or comments yourself. I guess my final shout out to listeners. I don't know how many listeners we all get on these podcasts, but if you're interested in social network analysis, any component of it, whether it's collecting relational data, visualizing relational data, doing descriptive network statistics, doing modeling of networks long-term through longitudinal network analysis. If you're interested in that stuff, Definitely bring it up with your supervisor, get in touch with myself. I think my contact information will be on the website, but I'm here as a resource for um, all University of Glasgow students. And um, that training is something I bring with me and something I look to contribute to PGRs and undergraduate students across the university. So get in touch. And I think some of the papers that you'll send or resources will, will add it to the show notes as well. Great. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. 